0: Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcast. We release a new episode every Monday morning. Please also go to johnwarrenmedia.com if you'd like to know more about us, or if you'd like to access our library of uh, previous episodes. We've been at this for almost a year now. You can also go there and send a a message to me. Uh, I enjoy hearing from you. I'm amazed by the widespread support that this podcast has. You can use our contact form there, or you can send an email to john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, today is going to be an interesting day because the school year just ended, and many of you, as many of you know, I teach at Circle Christian School. I get to teach 11th, really smart 11th and 12th graders, and I teach a couple of subjects every year, and I have somewhere around 100 students usually on average, uh, year after year and my class just ended yesterday so i am i am kind of uh decompressing i had another uh event i didn't expect that i want to share with you uh perhaps awkwardly but it it also contributes to this this sort of catch all episode where we're going to cover a lot of ground today and next week as well and then i'm going to launch into something else that i'm going to uh, tell you about today as well but I interviewed a young lady from Ukraine uh, who I know and uh, we were all set to go and uh, she had reservations about some of the things she said I assume based on security of her her family and others in Ukraine but she gave me some insights about the war and I will uh, pass those on to you during this episode so so that's kind of the first thing we're going to we're going to cover and then, I did a couple of weeks ago an update on the economy, and 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 that update is already stale because uh, this we're moving fast. I'm going to give you another update on the economy, and then and I know the the negative connotation of this word, but we're going to next talk about stewardship, and it's not stewardship the way you've heard it in sermons over the years. This is a, a, a broader topic of. A biblical stewardship and what we're how we're supposed to live there's been a lot going on in the world and and i want to i want to touch on some of those things and then i just as i said just had my last classes of the semester of the school year i'm gonna miss the uh, seniors at circle christian school you've heard from some of them in early episodes back last summer when we Started the podcast, I interviewed, I had conversations with several of them. They are just a rich blessing, an amazing group of young people. But one of the things that I do at the end of the school year, I did this year for the first time, is ask them about topics they'd like to hear me discuss on the podcast. And a theme among all of the hundred or so students was they want me to just rant from time to time about all the goings on in the world. And I'm probably not the best at that, but I want to acknowledge also a guy named Josh Brown and a lady named Jen Ransom and others at his productions. They produce this podcast and do a beautiful job of it. But Josh told me early on in this process, he gave me some very valuable coaching and I didn't even really understand the point he was making, but he said, you're going to be way better at this by the time you get to the end of your first year than you are today and I thought, well, you know, I talk for a living in class and I do some other things that I think are interesting and I do some public speaking. And so I can't imagine that I would be able to improve a lot uh, over. Plus, I'm old and set in my ways, I guess. And yet now I understand what he meant. And I want to thank you, the loyal relentless truth, uh, listener for tolerating this. But I, because of the lag time in these episodes, I sometimes confuse the order of their release. And I sometimes make reference to the date and there's a three or four week lag time where I, I produce an episode. I do the audio for the episode and send it away for producing at Josh's place. And then by the time it's released on a Monday, a few weeks later, Some of my references just don't apply. And in this fast-moving world, I'm really nervous about about our topics today, particularly Ukraine and the economy, because we are in a fast-paced world where things change quickly. So I'm going to give you the, the late April update as best I can. I think this information will be very helpful to you anyway. What has just happened in the news, interestingly, is Elon Musk has gone from making a bid for a hostile takeover of Twitter. He's attempted to spend, I, I think it's uh, $44 billion to acquire all of the shares of Twitter and take it private. He was rebuffed by their board in the media, kind of, sort of. And then they recognized their fiduciary duty. And apparently, based on all the the releases to the media this week, Elon Musk has been awarded this company at that price. And I would assume what happened there is, is the, the board recognized their, their fiduciary duty and uh, took a closer look at the, uh, his funding and recognized that this is actually good for the shareholders of Twitter. Well, it's not good, apparently, for some of the media on the left and some progressives in our country and many of the employees of Twitter. They are, to say they're melting down would be an understatement. There's talk of litigation and they took a day last week, they took a day off to to mourn or to grieve or to gather their thoughts bless their hearts these employees because they are just so emotionally devastated that this man Elon Musk is taking their company over I believe this is the largest public to private takeover in the history of our country perhaps in the history of the world in terms of dollars and I if I recall the uh, share price is $54 they were at the time, Mr. Musk bought his 9%, original 9% of the company. I think they were trading at 10 or $15 less than that. They've been kind of bouncing around in the 40s, I think, for uh, uh, stock price. So uh, fun times. But to talk about Ukraine just for, just for a, a, a few minutes, and I, I won't do this justice. My guest certainly did, and she poured her heart out. And it prompted me actually to go watch a, a documentary on, uh, on Ukraine from uh, uh, the 2014. I wish I remembered the, the name of the documentary. I think it was on Netflix. It might have been on Amazon Prime. But it's the, uh, the story of the kind of the, the revolution that Ukraine staged. And I, I follow the news uh, almost to an annoying level, if you ask my wife and friends. But I just don't remember. I, I remember Russia's takeover of Crimea at, back then. And I remember, you know, reading about this guy that Russia installed as head of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people sort of uh, uh, threw him out. I think he fled in the middle of the night and now lives in exile somewhere in Russia, uh, if you can call it that. And that documentary, I, I would commend to you. It's a. This is a heartier people than I realized. I have a friend, Richard Warner, who is a dear friend, he and his wife, Barbara. And I made the mistake of saying to Richard, uh, and he's been very gracious uh, about this, not sort of rubbing my nose in this. But but I I said, you know, it looks like the Ukrainian people will just welcome Russia with open arms. Well, I wish I'd seen that documentary before, because the Ukrainian people have and, and I know several of them, my wife and I had the pleasure of hosting some of them in our home uh, with um, Music Mission Kiev years ago, and uh, I've kept in touch with that organization over the years. Know uh, Randy Johnson and a lot of those uh, folks who do some really good work there. But and, and I know their spirit, and I know how smart they are, and how how tough they are. But I thought that relationship with Russia was so close that this wouldn't be much of a conflict. It would kind of. I, I think the Russians thought that too. Uh, now that now that I look at it. I thought they were just going to ride in with their tanks and and white flags would pop up everywhere and and this would be over in short order. Well, that certainly hasn't happened, has it? And so my guest talked about her dad living there, the experience with the uh, the Russian army is that they they're afraid of the Ukrainian army and this the Russians have them outmanned and, and better equipment and and better supplies and 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 better vehicles, better everything. But the Ukrainians have a stronger will to fight and they know the terrain and it's their country and they're defending it. And uh, there are people living in, in, in some of these towns, some of these provinces on the eastern and southeastern part of Ukraine who are just under duress. They're surrounded. They are they are withstanding a barrage of missiles and and munitions and constant Russian soldiers who are being resupplied and and reinvigorated by uh, replacement troops. And this group of Ukrainians is hardy and they are defending their country. So I'm not going to uh, further embarrass myself by predicting that this will be over soon, but my prayer certainly, and I know your prayer is that, that, that it will be over soon. This is quite a conflict. I have a friend who, who owns a business in Ukraine, and I've been able to learn through him how smart the people are, how resourceful they are. Uh, this is a very special nation. They value their independence, and they're clearly going to fight to the end. My guest was an orphan in Ukraine, and you may know that uh, that has been a major problem in that country over the years. They, they now are a relatively free country. They appreciate liberty. They appreciate Western values some of those values are good and some not so good from a moral standpoint but they they are a freedom loving liberty loving people and and they're going to fight and defend their country their president is well regarded volodymyr uh, zelensky is his name and uh, he was just visited to uh, here here's one of those here's one of those production mistakes that I'm going to make uh, he was just visited this week by General Austin and uh, our uh, Secretary of uh, Defense, he's our Secretary of Defense, and our uh, Secretary of State. And they also had a meeting then with, I believe, 40 other nations to continue to, to provide support. And the Russians bombed train depots soon after they left, I guess, showing the world that they have this capability because those two... Cabinet members, uh, members Blinken was the other one, uh, Secretary of State, uh, who who attended. They they did use trains to go to Kyiv. It is just impressive to me that anyone has the courage to go to that city. And uh, thankfully, we have uh, uh, people serving in this government, this United States government, who have that much courage. The humanitarian efforts are are incredible. Uh, they're effective. There are surgeries that are being done, babies delivered. My guest even talked about her dad being able to go to a fresh food market. They have lots of fresh food markets. They eat fresh food in the Ukraine. And they, they still, in even in this eastern province that he's in, they still have access to, to fresh food. Somehow they're getting it in. The war is incredibly difficult. Uh, Russia has targeted civilian targets. You know this. They aren't fighting nicely if there is such a thing. And uh, my prayer is I I don't, well, one, I don't want to forget to continue to pray for Ukraine. I would urge you to do that, that the gospel would go forward in that country. I know several pastors who minister in that country I've had the pleasure of talking with over the last few years. And uh, I, I pray for the Ukrainian people, pray for peace, and pray that the liberty that they love would be restored. I pray that their country would not be turned to dust by Russian military weapons and missiles, but that they would enjoy peace and that this conflict would stop very soon. So that's Ukraine. I hope to release these two episodes of this conversation with this young lady who I respect tremendously, who grew up in Ukraine uh, soon. And uh, you'll, you'll enjoy those episodes, but I, I wanted to provide, I didn't do it justice, but I wanted to provide just a quick overview of what is going on in the Ukraine and what she told me about. Her anecdotes are beautiful. She talks about her childhood, about people who love her here in Winter Park, Florida, the Grandstaff family who really take good care of her, have taken good care of her since she moved to Florida and even before. And she talked about a lot of the people in her life who are very meaningful to her. She has a job at a place called Synorama Lake Mary owned by some friends of mine, the Pearson family, and she talked about that and just a great long conversation about her life and its challenges. Uh, you will be pleased to meet her at the appropriate time. So uh, next, I want to switch gears and I want to talk about the economy at another economic update. And I know some of you say, oh, John, not again. I don't want to hear any more about the economy. I'm sick of it. Well, I have to talk about it because a couple of days ago in China, the stock market declined by six percent in one day. We had a terrible couple of days in the stock market, a Friday and a Tuesday recently, where on a combined basis we almost values declined in the Dow by eighteen, nineteen hundred dollars the two-day period now we had we had a little bit of a good day between those two but it didn't offset those those huge losses so this volatility demands i think a, a conversation and i i've got to try to help all of us answer the question what's coming next and what can we do so you're faced with and you know i've discussed this in several episodes now but i know that you're faced with what we call inflation. It's really rising prices. Inflation is actually the devaluation of the currency, and there are a number, a number of things that that cause this devaluation. But you don't care about all those definitions and semantics. You care the, about the fact that when you go to the supermarket, you you pay a fortune for things. You, a number of items that are considered uh, dietary staples are, are now cost double what they costed a year ago. So that's a concern. And you're probably scratching your head and saying, why is this happening? Why is our government not more concerned about this? And why is the press fighting over who caused it? And why does Joe Biden say, blame everything on Vladimir Putin? And why, when I fill up my car, am I paying two times what I paid at the end of the Trump administration? Does that mean Donald Trump did something good and Joe Biden did something bad? What does it all mean? And what do I do? Well, I met with a good friend of mine, his, his name is Jeff Hooper, and I've, I've asked him to come on my podcast and talk about the history of the United States with me coming up, and we're working on arranging that now. But I, I met with him, and, and we had he's a good old friend, and we, we talked about how we each look at the economy and what we track. And one of the things we both track is the, both the 2- and the 10-year U.S. Treasury treasury bonds, and and I went back after that conversation, and I really did this in preparation for my uh, wrap-up at the end of the school year in my economics class at Circle Christian School, but I looked at the two-year bond, and I went back to the first day of the school year back in August, and you're not going to believe this. The interest rate that was paid on a two-year bond by our government back then was point one seven either one six or one seven percent depending on the exact day but right in that week it was 0.16 to 017 percent so if you invested in in a in a two-year bond back then your, your yield was virtually zero and you might realize uh, or might remember that the discount rate that is the interest rate that the fed actually the federal reserve actually sets that is the rate that they pay that banks pay for overnight borrowings or borrowings among each other was either zero or 025 percent, depending on the size of the bank. So we're gonna call the discount rate back then 0.25%, just to make it easy to talk about. And the two-year bond, two year treasury was at 0.17% in August of twenty twenty-one, to be clear. Well, fast forward to last week, a couple days ago even. I don't know where it's going to be when this episode is released, but I got a feeling it's going to hover right around here. The two-year treasury is at 2.72%. Paying 2.72%. April of 2022. So in just a few months' time, eight months' time, we've gone from 0.17% for the two-year to 2.72%. And now... You say who cares about that oh, John I don't invest in treasuries why do I care well you actually do care because the market the US government has to has to play in a market in a bond market and and you you've heard of municipal bonds tax exempt bonds they're taxable and taxable exempt bonds and all sorts of denominations all sorts of maturities the bond market is an interesting market but these rates are set by, the market. They're set by supply and demand. You probably remember if you if you were awake that day in economics back in college or even high school, you probably remember the concept of equilibrium, equilibrium. And you know that that there's a place where supply and demand curves cross at a certain price. And, and so this market's always looking for the right price. And just look at this movement from 0.17% for a two-year treasury eight months ago in August to 2.72% today. So I'm going to put this in real simple terms and, and my, my PhD friends in economics are going to cringe that I oversimplified this to this level, but I'm going to do it because I think it's helpful. And that is this two year treasury is actually predicting where the discount rate is going to go. So when Jerome Powell, the head of the federal reserve said a couple of days ago at the IMF, and it was just a speech that he did. It wasn't this official forecast or this pronouncement. It was, they were debating something. I can't remember what the topic was, but he he referenced the fact that in May, the Fed is going to raise the discount rate by another 0.5%. So we have this group of business, we're going to call them Wall Street press people, analysts who watch Wall Street, who try to predict... What the Fed is going to do, and you've probably heard this, they're saying not only are they going to raise rates, the discount rate, by 0.5% in May, they're going to raise it seven several more, not seven, several more times, probably four more times this year. Now, are they going to raise by a quarter, which is their tradition, or are they going to raise by a half point? I would say they're probably going to raise it by a quarter. But in any case, this two-year Treasury is trying to predict. It, it's the market's effort to predict where – the discount rate, the rate set by the Fed is actually going. And we could talk about the yield curve and the yield curve is really just a, it's actually a model of where you you draw a curve showing the difference between very short-term rates, like the overnight rate all the way through 30, 35 year, 40 year bonds. And the yield curve usually slopes upward, meaning as we go longer, the rates go higher. And there've been times where it's, it has inverted and even been flat and we we can talk about that another day, but this two year bond I think is important now. The ten year, interestingly, there is a the ten year treasury too. It has gone from one point two nine percent in August, one point two nine for a ten year. So, if you invested your money in a U.S. government bond for ten years, you earned one point two nine percent. If you grabbed that bond back in specific week uh, near near the end of middle to the end of August of 2021, you would have earned 1.29%. Well, a couple days ago, you were earning 2.9%. Now we fell off of that by a few basis points, but it's still right around 2.9%. So we've more than doubled. We've gone from 1.29% to 2.9%. Now, again, you say, John, why do we care about that? That seems esoteric. I don't even know anybody who invests in U.S. treasuries anymore. Well, you do care about that. And here's why. The 30-year bond, now, now we're going real long. The uh, 30-year bond has moved from 1.83% to 2.94%. And now you know where I'm going. 30-year mortgages, home mortgages, the kind that Americans who rely on debt use to fund their homes, their home purchases, Those rates have gone from 2.77% in August of 2021 to over 5.3% today. Now, those mortgages, those 30-year mortgages, now we're into more of a retail banking product. But those mortgages really have a range, don't they? You probably hear from friends who say, oh, I got this rate because I have a guy or I went to Quicken Loans and I got this rate because I talked to a nice person that I got from who answered the phone on their 800 number. Or I've had a mortgage guy that I've used through multiple purchases, a mortgage person, and they have they get me a really good rate. Or I couldn't quite get the rate I wanted because I have a credit issue. Or I had to pay a little bit more because my loan to value ratio. So this isn't quite a perfect science. There are ranges of these rates. And let me Let me tell you what's happening in in, in mortgage world. Mortgages are going up, and I don't want to get in the weeds on this topic, but I'm going to grossly oversimplify this. The Federal Reserve has been buying bonds to the tune of about $600 billion a month since COVID happened to stimulate, to backstop certain aspects of the economy. Yeah, and you know about the stimulus checks and all of that, That's, and PPP, the, the payroll protection. I'm, I'm not talking about those things, those direct government stimuli and protections. I'm talking about something else. I'm, I'm talking about pumping money into the economy, which dilutes the value of your dollars and has, in fact, created this inflation that you're seeing when you go to the supermarket, just to say it plainly. And I know I've talked about that several times already. But I want you to think about this. What is happening with mortgages is that the Fed was buying with some of that $600 billion mortgage-backed securities, propping up the mortgage industry. Just think of it this way, taking risk on their shoulders and away from the mortgage industry to some extent. There's still risk in lending in the mortgage industry, even when the Fed had this policy in place. Well, Jerome Powell announces, we're not going to do that. We're tapering that. We're not going to. We're not going to do this easing. They, they call it quantitative easing, which is a weird way to say pumping money into the economy. We're not going to do that anymore. So you know what mortgage companies do immediately? The real lenders, the underlying wholesale lenders, they raise the rates because you understand the, the risk yield relationship. Higher the risk, higher the yield. So when this happens, just think of all the forces moving on, on this market. When this happens, the mortgage rates began to rise. I I think real mortgage, I had two friends who called me on the same day, contacted me on the same day to say, hey, we had mortgages locked in at 3.5%, and now the lender's like trying to get out of the commitment. They want to reprice at a higher rate. Now, one of those friends was refinancing, and he decided not to go forward. The other one was purchasing a new home, and he ended up at 4.5%, even though he had a commitment at 3.5%. So, Mortgage companies started raising rates aggressively. You can go look at the curve. Just Google the average 30-year mortgage rates, and you can see this curve, and you can see that it is rising parabolically. The curve is, is almost going straight up. And I think people are paying now close to 6%. People who actually need a mortgage are purchasing a home. They're going to pay about 6%. Well, you know that... At six percent, a couple that has X available for a mortgage payment, say two or three thousand dollars a month, they've got good jobs and they've they've got free cash flow that allows them to get comfortable with a a mortgage payment of two to three thousand dollars. Whereas they could play in the world of of houses that are priced at four to six hundred thousand. Now they're now they're down to the 250 to 350 at the at these higher rates cuz rates have gone from 2.77% in August to over 5.3 closer to 6%. So you look at all of that and you have to conclude that the housing market is going to have to react at some point. And I'm not smart enough to know where that is. It feels intuitively and I've seen some work by a couple of experts who who say it's around six and a half percent. I don't know where that is for 30 year mortgages, but we fall right off a cliff from a demand standpoint at that point. Now you say, ah, don't worry about that. We have low supply of houses. Don't you know, you idiot, that maybe you wouldn't call me an idiot, but don't you know that the housing market is it's limited supply? And when you have limited supply and demand is strong, then we'll get through this and we won't really have much of a recession. Life is going to be OK and prices will stabilize and everything will be all right. Well, not so fast, because this market, America is driven by debt, is funded by debt. We've, we, The average American has barely any savings for a rainy day. And even though I know you're hearing it in some states like Florida, Texas, California, or Arizona, you're hearing about all these cash buyers who are supporting the market, buying houses sight unseen and and paying ridiculous prices – that's going to stop because there are enough of the housing purchases that go on in this country that are funded by debt that that now there's going to be pressure to reduce prices. These assets are overpriced and there's going to be a correction. One person who I follow even says there will be a 50% correction in home values. And so people who think our house has gone from being worth 300000 to $500,000, you are going to find that the house is worth two fifty. if what he said is accurate. I don't know whether that's accurate or not. I'm not sure that I predict this horrible falling off a cliff that he predicts, but I am smart enough to see that America's purchasing power is getting reduced at the supermarket and in the housing market. So that's really where we are there's a vicious cycle that goes on that uh, you can imagine when people perceive that their home value is decreasing they will i believe then want to put it on the market and sell it and if they don't have buyers for it at the price they thought it was worth then it'll have to reprice and reprice and reprice and i think that's the environment that we're going to be in very soon now right now my friends who are in this business tell me that Right now, the market's okay. If you want to sell a house, you can still sell it rather quickly if you're in a good market, and you can still take that price appreciation out. But friends, I am telling you that that is going to change, that that change is underway. We're beginning to hear, there's an economist at Sandler Piper, a uh, female economist, I can't remember her name at the moment, but she predicted a couple of days ago that uh, Europe is going to have a a rather severe recession in 2023, and the U.S. is going to have a recession as well, a moderate one. A recession, technically speaking, to an economist is two consecutive calendar quarters of negative GDP, negative growth from a goods and services produced standpoint. So it looks like we're headed to bumpy waters, and uh, what you can do about it today is... If you're going to be selling your property to take some of your equity out, I would suggest that you move rather quickly. It's funny how mortgage rates of 53 to 6% sound high, but if you go back just 10 years ago, they weren't so high. Those rates wouldn't have been so high. So if we're headed to 7 or 8 or even 10%, you might be glad you made your move now. I unfortunately have to say that I think you missed your really good window of opportunity back when rates were much lower, not your fault. Don't beat yourself up over this. These mortgage rates are rising at a really alarming rate at a very rapid rate. We all blinked. And about 90 days later, rates went from about three to three and a half percent to like we said before, 5.3 to six or so. So I would suggest that you follow this market so you know what's going on. I don't give investment advice, and I'm not giving you investment. I'm not licensed to give, thankfully, to give investment advice. But it seems to me that the stock market is also reacting similarly. I want to whet your appetite for another topic. It's going to be our subject next week. And I mentioned it at the outset here. It is stewardship And it's not stewardship the way we think of stewardship. I don't know about you, but when I hear that word, I think of all the sermons I've heard where the pastor starts saying, and he says something like, you know, this is stewardship week. And what that usually ends up meaning to the sermon, what the sermon is typically about is giving. And stewarding our money and giving is certainly a part of stewardship. But it's a very small part. It's a sliver of this concept. The Apostle Paul mentioned stewardship a handful of times, uh, the word stewardship. He talks about the concept quite a lot. Uh, Jesus talked about it during his ministry, even on the in the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 or so. And we'll talk about some of these specific references next week. But today I want to just introduce the topic. And I have to tell you that being a teacher at Circle Christian School gives me a tremendous advantage over other people because I get to prepare each week and that preparation is just really healthy for me. And then I get to go into class and have a discussion and I actually take notes. (laughs) I I know this sounds strange. I take notes in the class because of the wisdom of the students. So we've been walking through Tim Challey's book, which I would commend to you, although it's brief and not particularly uh, detailed, it's called Visual Theology, and I, I really don't even like the visual part of visual theology. I just like the way he sums up theology. But there are some helpful visuals in the book, and I, I like the the graphics and in some cases. But this book has a chapter. It's chapter 10, the last chapter that we looked at this semester on stewardship. And I asked the class, all, all of my classes, all three sections of this class— I ask them, "What do we steward? What does the Bible actually say that we steward?" And you should see the list. It's really quite an impressive list. And and you know, you start with your treasure. You know, you, it starts with a a discussion, a financial discussion. We obviously steward our money. Well, Charlie says something really interesting. I like the way he puts this. He says, "You don't own it. It all belongs to God." And that I always just think of money and maybe my home and cars and you know other other assets. But Chalice goes on to explain that no, God owns it and you manage it applies to everything. And so as the students do this list of what, what are we stewarding? What what are all the things in that context that we steward? We have time, obviously. That's a difficult one, money, the gospel, relationships, our bodies, our talents, our jobs, our hearts, the environment. Our minds, the gospel, I think I mentioned already, and the other obvious things like property and money and all the rest that we mentioned in the beginning. And it sounds daunting to me then to think of stewardship so broadly. It actually sounds kind of painful. And I walk away thinking, and I'm going to prove this to you next week with scripture, but I, I walk away from this topic feeling overwhelmed, feeling oppressed almost by this demand, this biblical demand for me to be a good steward. And we're going we're gonna to look in Ephesians 5. We'll look at other scriptures the next week to try to, to really ascertain what, what, what this duty is. But I'm going to tell you what it is today just because I, I think this is helpful. I've taught these classes for years. And it's amazing to me how a certain truth will sort of, God will use it and use certain scripture to just make the truth unlock, uh, you know, where it was previously sort of hostage to, to my bad thinking. And all of the sudden through study, it unlocks. And here's the principle with respect to stewardship that just has, I've seen much more with a much more clear eyed view this year, this past couple of weeks, even that is this. When pastors, most pastors preach on stewardship, they give me the impression that I'm supposed to live sacrificially and do the absolute best that I can. The standard is God demands my absolute best efforts. I unfortunately, in my banking career, I say unfortunately, it's it's very pleasant to do so, but I had to learn things like, what are best efforts from a legal standpoint? What do attorneys say? What does the law say best efforts are? And what's a reasonable effort? And what all those things mean? And so in my head, when I think of best efforts, I think of absolute best efforts. No slacking off, no faking it, no no achieving a certain And I think of stewardship and God's standard. And I know who God is. I know I can taste that just a little bit from study. And we've talked about it here And I believe that God is transcendent. That means apart from us, larger than we can imagine. And it intimidates me to think that he demands my best efforts in stewardship. So I studied the word, steward and stewardship, those words, two forms of the same word. And here's what I've come to realize that, and maybe I'm just framing it this way. And maybe that's why it's helpful to me. In stewardship, in biblical stewardship, our best efforts aren't the issue. It is the will in stewardship. In stewardship, we are to execute the will of the owner of the asset that we're stewarding. (laughs) And I, I don't know whether that sounds powerful to you or not. Maybe everybody else already knows this, but that's a game changer to me. I'm supposed to execute. So if God owns it all, I'm supposed to execute my stewardship duty to reflect his will. Think of it. Think of a house steward, a person who stewards another person's assets on earth. Just to simplify this, they don't go make decisions. So the, I guess the stereotype would be the, the steward is left managing the, the estate of the the wealthy guy who goes on a trip around the world for six months. The steward is supposed to make the decisions that reflect the will of the owner. The steward isn't supposed to think independently and just be wise and just make the very best decision they can possibly make and just try really hard to do their best. They must know in advance the will of the owner. Well, how do we do that? How do we know God's will? This is really important. We're going to talk about this next week. We know God's will through scripture and prayer, primarily. Sorry, seminary friends for oversimplifying that, but that's how we know it. In the case of the steward managing resources for the rich guy, they've got to sit down and talk. They've got to have a plan. It's helpful if if they're intimate, if they know each other intimately so that the steward knows what the owner would do, what the owner's will is for those assets. Do I buy? Do I sell? Do I trade? How do I maintain them? what sort of decisions do I have to make? If, if I've got to manage the whole estate, I've got to know the will of the owner. If that were not true, the person wouldn't be a steward. They would just have some fiduciary duty to do their best. Stewardship and fiduciary are not the same. I've said they're the same for years. I don't believe that to be the case. And I think I can prove it biblically next week. And we're going to take a good shot at doing that. So we must know God's will. Now, the typical Christian, and I spent most of my life thinking this, typical evangelical probably thinks, when you think about God's will, just imagine this. Walk into a Christian bookstore, if they still exist, and we get our books through Amazon because it's just so cool that you can order it and it shows up tomorrow. But imagine walking into a Christian bookstore and saying to a clerk, I'd like to see all of your titles on determining God's will. Oh, my goodness. Hundreds, if not thousands, right? Right? And most of them are coming at this, this topic, determining God's will from from the standpoint of I'm walking down the path, the road forks, and I've got to choose the left fork, fork A, or the right fork, fork B. I just thought of really a random thought that Yogi Berra said when you come to a fork in the road, take it. But usually we think when we want to determine God's will, it's it's where am I gonna to go to college? What what should I do for a career? what about this decision? I've got to make a decision and I, and I've got, and and sometimes that decision isn't even a moral decision. If it's a moral decision and scripture addresses it, it's easy, but we know what's right. We sometimes resist it, but sometimes it's, do I keep this job working from home or do I go get another job and drive to work? Or do I purchase this thing or not this thing? Or do I purchase this item or a different one, a substitute good or in my parenting, do I go down this path or this path? And some of those things are unlocked in scripture or revealed by scripture, but I believe God's will. And I believe my theologian friends will agree with this. God's will is disclosed in scripture and it's best summarized in the command to glorify God, love your neighbor as yourself and glorify God. The new Testament summary of the law. And I butchered that, but you get the idea. It's those two things. They do summarize the law. The law is summarized this way. And so how we glorify God to, to do that, to know his will, we must know him. And to know him, we've got to spend time in scripture. This is one of the real benefits of being in scripture every day and trying to dig deeper and trying to really understand the truth of scripture. We know things like scripture doesn't contradict scripture. We have some difficult passages. We have to come to grips with God's disclosure to us is it complete? There are mysteries, there are things we we won't ever understand. There are there are some there's some tension in some areas that appear to be contradictions, but we can study, I don't believe there are any meaningful contradictions in scripture, but we we can study and pray, and God illuminates us as we're sanctified, as we mature, and we can know, we can rest knowing his will. We don't have to, the way I used to look at it, and this, I I know this is, you're going to think less of me for this probably, but this is a horrible way to look at life, but I was kind of taught this growing up in my church, and I, I embraced this as a young adult as well, and that is, if I have to choose A or B, I will only know whether it was God's will for me or not based on, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try to figure it out. I might, I might even pray about it, but it's almost unknowable unless you're really spiritual. And those really spiritual people seem to get it right. And evidence that they got it right or that I got it right is how it turned out after the fact, if it turned out positively for me, that must have been God's will because after all God loves me, I never learned all the, all the verses that talk about trials in our lives being used by God to make us steadfast. I, I I didn't really get that. I didn't really learn about how to recover from failure, the value of failure. I think of athletes when I talk about this, but but look at their failures. Look at the even pop stars, even well-known, successful, wealthy business people. Go study their failures. God uses failure in our lives to teach us to make us, in Paul's words, to make us steadfast, grounded. There's so much there, and I'm now rambling through this topic, and I haven't referenced the passages of Scripture that I have in front of me in the interest of time. I want to cover this topic thoroughly next week, but I think because stewardship is not what we think it is, it's actually reflecting the wishes of the owner of the assets. And he owns it all. Everything on that list I read from my students' discussion in class is owned by God, and I'm stewarding it. And stewarding it is simply reflecting the will of the owner. And God's will for me is that I glorify him with my life by loving my neighbor as myself. So we got to talk about agape. we got to talk about learn- loving without reciprocity. We've got to talk about what that means, what that looks like, how in the world can I steward these things, money, time, the gospel, relationships, my body, talents, my job. How can I steward those things appropriately? What in the world does stewarding those things have to do with loving my neighbor and thereby glorifying God? We're going to talk about that next week. That's exciting. Thank you for your support. Pardon the rambling today. We covered a lot of ground. Our great hope is in Jesus Christ. We can rest in that. So please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. Share this podcast with your friends. We we now have listeners all over the world, and the way they find out about us is by somebody listening and sharing. Don't underestimate your value in spreading the word of Relentless Truth. You can go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com for more information. Please contact me there, or you can contact me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.